Chapter Forty of Young People's Treasury, Volume Six: Famous Travels and Adventures by Hamilton Wright Maybe. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Betty B. The Great Albert Nyanza by Sir Samuel Baker. My men appeared in high spirits at the prospect of joining so large a party as this of Mohammed, which mustered about two hundred men. At that time I really placed dependence upon the professions of Mohammed and his people. They had just brought Speak and Grant with them, and had received from them presents of a first-class double-barreled gun and several valuable rifles. I had promised not only to assist them in their ivory expeditions, but to give them something very handsome in addition, and the fact of my having upward of forty men as escort was also an introduction, as they would be in addition to the force, which is a great advantage in hostile countries. Everything appeared to be in good train, but I little knew the duplicity of these Arab scoundrels. At the very moment that they were most friendly, they were plotting to deceive me, and to prevent me from entering the country. They knew that, should I penetrate the interior, the ivory trade of the White Nile would be no longer a mystery, and that the atrocities of the slave trade would be exposed, and most likely be terminated by the intervention of european powers accordingly they combined to prevent my advance and to overthrow my expedition completely the whole of the men belonging to the various traders were determined that no englishman should penetrate into the country accordingly they fraternized with my escort and persuaded them that i was a christian dog that it was a disgrace for a mohammedan to serve that they would be starved in my service as I would not allow them to steal cattle, that they would have no slaves, and that I should lead them, God knew where, to the sea, from whence Speak and Grant had started. Among my people were two blacks, one, Richarn, already described as having been brought up by the Austrian mission at Khartoum, the other, a boy of twelve years old, Sa'at. As these were the only really faithful members of the expedition, it is my duty to describe them, Richarn was a habitual drunkard, but he had his good points. He was honest and much attached to both master and mistress. He had been with me for some months and was a fair sportsman, and being of an entirely different race from the Arabs, he kept himself apart from them and fraternized with the boy, Sa'at. Not only was the latter boy trustworthy, but he had an extraordinary amount of moral in addition to physical courage. If any complaint were made, and Sa'at was called as a witness, far from the shyness too often evinced when the accuser is brought face to face with the accused, such was Sa'at's proudest moment, and, no matter who the man might be, the boy would challenge him, regardless of all consequences. We were very fond of this boy. He was thoroughly good, and in that land of iniquity, thousands of miles away from all, except what was evil, there was a comfort in having someone innocent and faithful in whom to trust one morning i had returned to the tent after having as usual inspected the transport animals when i observed mrs baker looking extraordinarily pale and immediately upon my arrival she gave orders for the presence of the vaquil head man there was something in her manner so different from her usual calm that i was utterly bewildered when i heard her question the vaquil whether the men were willing to march perfectly ready was the reply then order them to strike the tent and load the animals we start this moment the man appeared confused but not more so than i 
something was evidently on foot but what i could not conjecture the vakil wavered and to my astonishment i heard the accusation made against him that during the night the whole of the escort had mutinously conspired to desert me with my arms and ammunition that were in their hands and to fire simultaneously at me should i attempt to disarm them at first this charge was indignantly denied until the boy saat manfully stepped forward and declared that the conspiracy was entered into by the whole of the escort and that both he and richarn knowing that mutiny was intended had listened purposely to the conversation during the night at daybreak the boy reported the fact to his mistress mutiny robbery and murder were thus deliberately determined but i promptly dismissed them as mutineers we now took a different road my wife and i rode about a quarter of a mile at the head of the party as an advance guard to warn the caravan of any difficulty the very nature of the country declared that it must be full of ravines and yet i could not help hoping against hope that we might have a clear mile of road without a break the evening had passed and the light faded what had been difficult and tedious during the day now became most serious we could not see the branches of hooked thorns that overhung the broken path i rode in advance my face and arms bleeding with countless scratches while at each rip of a thorn i gave a warning shout thorn for those behind and a cry of hole for any deep rut that lay in the path it was fortunately moonlight but the jungle was so thick that the narrow track was barely perceptible thus both camels and donkeys ran against the trunks of trees smashing the luggage and breaking all that could be broken nevertheless the case was urgent march we must at all hazards for a long time we sat gazing at the valley before us in which our fate lay hidden feeling thankful that we had thus checkmated the brutal turks not a sound was heard of our approaching camels the delay was most irksome there were many difficult places that we had passed through and each would be a source of serious delay to the animals at length we heard them in the distance we could distinctly hear the men's voices and we rejoiced that they were approaching the last remaining obstacle that one ravine passed through and all before would be easy i heard the rattling of the stones as they drew nearer and looking toward the ravine i saw emerge from the dark foliage of the trees within fifty yards of us the hated red flag and crescent leading the turks party we were outmarched one by one with scowling looks the insolent scoundrels filed by us within a few feet without making the customary salam neither noticing us in any way except by threatening to shoot the latuka our guide who had formerly accompanied them at length their leader ibrahim appeared in the rear of the party he was riding on a donkey being the last of the line behind the flag that closed the march i never saw a more atrocious countenance than that exhibited in this man a mixed breed between a turk sire and an arab mother he had the good features and bad qualities of either race the fine sharp high arched nose and large nostril the pointed and projecting chin rather high cheekbones and prominent brow overhanging a pair of immense black eyes full of expression of all evil as he approached he took no notice of us but studiously looked straight before him with the most determined insolence the fate of the expedition was at this critical moment retrieved by mrs baker she implored me to call him to insist upon a personal explanation and to offer him some present in the event of establishing amicable relations 
i could not condescend to address the sullen scoundrel he was in the act of passing us and success depended upon that instant mrs baker herself called him for the moment he made no reply but upon my repeating the call in a loud key he turned his donkey toward us and dismounted i ordered him to sit down as his men were ahead and we were alone the following dialogue passed between us after the usual arab mode of greeting i said ibrahim why should we be enemies in the midst of this hostile country we believe in the same god why should we quarrel in this land of heathens who believe in no god you have your work to perform i have mine you want ivory i am a simple traveller why should we clash if i were offered the whole ivory of the country i would not accept a single tusk nor interfere with you in any way transact your business and don't interfere with me the country is wide enough for us both i have a task before me to reach a great lake the head of the nile reach it i will inshallah no power shall drive me back if you are hostile i will imprison you in khartoum if you assist me i will reward you far beyond any reward you have ever received should i be killed in this country you will be suspected you know the result the government would hang you on the bare suspicion on the contrary if you are friendly i will use my influence in any country that i discover that you may procure its ivory for the sake of your master Korshid, who was generous to captain speak and grant and kind to me should you be hostile i shall hold your master responsible as your employer should you assist me i will befriend you both choose your course frankly like a man friend or enemy before he had time to reply mrs baker addressed him much in the same strain telling him that he did not know what englishmen were that nothing would drive them back that the british government watched over them wherever they might be and that no outrage could be committed with impunity upon a british subject that i would not deceive him in any way that i was not a traitor and that i should be able to assist him materially by discovering new countries rich in ivory and that he would benefit himself personally by civil conduct he seemed confused and wavered i immediately promised him a new double-barreled gun and some gold when my party should arrive as an earnest of the future he replied that he did not himself wish to be hostile but that all the trading parties without one exception were against me and that the men were convinced that i was a consul in disguise who would report to the authorities at khartoum all the proceedings of the traders he said also that he believed me but that his men would not that all people told lies in their country therefore no one was credited for the truth however said he do not associate with my people or they may insult you but go and take possession of that tree pointing to one in the valley of Illyria, for yourself and people and i will come there and speak with you i will now join my men as i do not wish them to know that i have been conversing with you he then made a salaam mounted his donkey and rode off i had won him i knew the arab character so thoroughly that i was convinced that the tree he had pointed out followed by the words i will come there and speak with you was to be the rendezvous for the receipt of the promised gun and money he was friendly after this but the men showed an ugly temper pretending not to notice Bilal, who was now as i had suspected once more the ringleader for the third time i ordered the men to rise immediately and to load the camels not a man moved but the fellow Bilal marched up to me and looking me straight in the face 
dashed the butt-end of his gun in defiance on the ground and led the mutiny not a man shall go with you go where you like with ibrahim but we won't follow you nor move a step farther the men shall not load the camels you may employ the niggers to do it but not us i looked at this mutinous rascal for a moment this was the burst of the conspiracy and the threats and insolence that i had been forced to pass over for the sake of the expedition all rushed before me lay down your gun i thundered and load the camels i won't was his reply then stop here i answered at the same time lashing out as quick as lightning with my right hand upon his jaw he rolled over in a heap his gun flying some yards from his hand and the late ringleader lay apparently insensible among the luggage while several of his friends ran to him and did the good samaritan following up on the moment the advantage i had gained by establishing a panic i seized my rifle and rushed into the midst of the wavering men catching first one by the throat and then another and dragging them to the camels which i insisted upon their immediately loading all except three who attended to the ruined ringleader mechanically obeyed richarn and sali both shouted to them to hurry and the vakil arriving at this moment and seeing how matters stood himself assisted and urged the men to obey the first deserters met defeat in their slave raid it was in vain that they fought every bullet aimed at a latuka struck a rock behind which the enemy was hidden rocks stones and lances were hurled at them from all sides and above they were forced to retreat the retreat ended in a panic and precipitate flight hemmed in on all sides amidst a shower of lances and stones thrown from the mountain above the turks fled down the rocky and precipitous ravines mistaking their route they came to a precipice from which there was no retreat the screaming and yelling savages closed around them fighting was useless the natives under cover of the numerous detached rocks offered no mark for an aim while the crowd of armed savages thrust them forward with wild yells to the very verge of the great precipice about five hundred feet below down they fell hurled to utter destruction by the mass of latukas pressing onward a few fought to the last but one and all were at length forced by sheer pressure over the edge of the cliff and met a just reward for their atrocities my men were almost green with awe when i asked them solemnly where are those men who deserted from me without answering a word they brought two of my guns and laid them at my feet they were covered with clotted blood mixed with sand which had hardened like cement over the locks and various portions of the barrels my guns were all marked as i looked at the numbers upon the stocks i repeated aloud the names of the owners are they all dead i asked none of the bodies can be recovered faltered my vakil the two guns were brought from the spot by some natives who escaped and who saw the men fall they are all killed better for them had they remained with me and done their duty the hand of god is heavy i replied my men slunk away abashed leaving the gory witnesses of defeat and death on the ground i called saat and ordered him to give the two guns to richarn to clean not only my own men but the whole of ibrahim's party were of the opinion that i had some mysterious connection with the disaster that had befallen my mutineers all remembered the bitterness of my prophecy the vultures will pick their bones and this terrible mishap having occurred so immediately afterward took a strong hold upon their superstitious minds as i passed through the camp the men would quietly exclaim wa elahi hawaga my good master to which i simply replied 
Robinet Fay, there is a God. From that moment I observed an extraordinary change in the manner of both my people and those of Ibrahim, all of whom now paid us the greatest respect. Our course lay across a stream in the center of a marsh, and although deep, it was so covered with thickly matted water grass and other aquatic plants that a natural floating bridge was established by a carpet of weeds about two feet thick. Upon this waving and unsteady surface, the men ran quickly across, sinking merely to the ankles, although beneath the tough vegetation there was deep water. It was equally impossible to ride or to be carried over this treacherous surface. Thus I led the way and begged Mrs. Baker to follow me on foot as quickly as possible, precisely in my track. The river was about eight yards wide, and I had scarcely completed a fourth of the distance and looked back to see if my wife followed close to me when I was horrified to see her standing in one spot and sinking gradually through the weeds while her face was distorted and perfectly purple. Almost as soon as I perceived her, she fell as though shot dead. In an instant, I was by her side, and with the assistance of eight or ten of my men, who were fortunately close to me, I dragged her like a corpse through the yielding vegetation, and up to our waists we scrambled across to the other side, just keeping her head above the water. To have carried her would have been impossible, as we should all have sunk together through the weeds. I laid her under a tree and bathed her face and head with water, as for the moment I thought she had fainted, but she lay perfectly insensible as though dead, with teeth and hands firmly clenched and her eyes open but fixed. It was a coup de soleil. We bore her to a miserable native village where we could not procure anything to eat. It was impossible to remain. The people would have starved. She was laid gently upon her litter, and we started forward on our funereal course. I was ill and broken-hearted, and I followed by her side through the long day's march over wild parklands and streams, with thick forests and deep marshy bottoms, over undulating hills and through valleys of tall papyrus rushes, which, as we brushed through them on our melancholy way, waved over the litter like the black plumes of a hearse. We halted at a village, and again the night was passed in watching. I was wet and coated with mud from the swampy marsh, and shivered with ague, but the cold within was greater than all. No change had taken place. She had never moved. I had plenty of fat, and I made four balls of about half a pound, each of which would burn for three hours. A piece of a broken water jar formed a lamp, several pieces of rag serving for wicks. So in solitude, the still calm night passed away as I sat by her side and watched. In the drawn and distorted features that lay before me, I could hardly trace the same face that for years had been my comfort through all the difficulties and dangers of my path. Was she to die? Was so terrible a sacrifice to be the result of my selfish exile? Again the night passed away, once more the march. Though weak and ill, and for two nights without a moment's sleep, I felt no fatigue, but mechanically followed by the side of the litter as though in a dream. The same wild country diversified with marsh and forest. Again we halted, the night came and I sat by her side in a miserable hut, with the feeble lamp flickering while she lay as in death. She had never moved a muscle since she fell. My people slept. I was alone, and no sound broke the stillness of the night. The ears ached at the utter silence, till the sudden wild cry of a hyena made me shudder as the horrible thought rushed through my brain that, should she be buried in this lonely spot, the hyena would disturb her rest. 
the morning was not far distant it was past four o'clock i had passed the night in replacing wet cloths upon her head and moistening her lips as she lay apparently lifeless on her litter i could do nothing more in solitude and abject misery in that dark hour in a country of savage heathens thousands of miles away from a christian land i beseeched an aid above all human trusting alone to him the morning broke my lamp had just burnt out and cramped with the night's watching i rose from my low seat and seeing that she lay in the same unaltered state i went to the door of the hut to breathe one gasp of the fresh morning air i was watching the first red streak that heralded the rising sun when i was startled by the words thank god faintly uttered behind me suddenly she had awakened from her torpor and with a heart overflowing i went to her bedside her eyes were full of madness she spoke but the brain was gone i will not inflict a description of the terrible trial of seven days of brain fever with its attendant horrors the rain poured in torrents and day after day we were forced to travel for want of provisions not being able to remain in one position every now and then we shot a few guinea fowl but rarely there was no game although the country was most favorable in the forest we procured wild honey but the deserted villages contained no supplies as we were on the frontier of uganda and mtesa's people had plundered the district for seven nights i had not slept and although as weak as a reed i had marched by the side of her litter nature could resist no longer we reached a village one evening she had been in violent convulsions successively it was all but over i laid her down on her litter within a hut covered her with a scotch plaid and i fell upon my mat insensible worn out with sorrow and fatigue my men put a new handle to the pickaxe that evening and sought for a dry spot to dig her grave the sun had risen when i woke i had slept and horrified as the idea flashed upon me that she must be dead and that i had not been with her i started up she lay upon her bed pale as marble and with that calm serenity that the features assume when the cares of life no longer act upon the mind and the body rests in death the dreadful thought bowed me down but as i gazed upon her in fear her chest gently heaved not with the convulsive throbs of fever but naturally she was asleep and when at a sudden noise she opened her eyes they were calm and clear she was saved when not a ray of hope remained god alone knows what helped us the gratitude of that moment i will not attempt to describe end of chapter forty